But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of that plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Good morning. It's good to be with you. There is a quote that's been attributed to Mark Twain. I don't know if actually he's the one who said it, but... I think what the quote says makes a lot of sense given our passage today. It's this. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand. Let that sit for a moment. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. I mean, you see, sometimes the very truths revealed in Scripture, these are the truths about God or about us or whatever that offend us and make us want to question our faith, make us want to question God. And we see this even in the very nature of the gospel message itself, right? The gospel is offensive. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. Paul in Romans, he's quoting Isaiah. He writes, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, the Jewish people couldn't fathom, couldn't accept the idea of their Messiah, their Savior being crucified on a cross. It was offensive. It was a stumbling block. To the Greeks, the idea of a God dying such a horrific and humiliating death reserved for the worst of criminals, that was just foolishness to them. 
And in the last chapter of Jonah today, we find that Jonah understands very well the kind of God that he worships. God is full of grace and mercy, but because he understands it, he is bothered by it. The text says that he is exceedingly displeased, even angry, but God challenges him multiple times. He says, do you do well to be angry? Or even better, we could put it as, what right do you have to be angry? And so this is what we're going to see in the, in the passage this morning with the first point, verses 1 to 4. That mercy is not predicated on merits, but on God's character. So let me read the first four verses again for us. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Right? That, that line should be very familiar to us, as our presider Andrew had mentioned, because we've been repeating it every week. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? You see, in the beginning of chapter 4, we see Jonah's true motive for fleeing, for running away. You know, why did Jonah make haste to flee to Tarshish? The, The key conjunction here, right, this key word for or because, right, because I knew that you are a gracious God. Now for us as, as readers of God's word, as hearers of God's word, we, we already knew this, right? If, because we read through the entirety of Jonah in the very first week. But if we didn't, then this is the big reveal, right? This is that reveal which causes us to look all the way back on Jonah's actions in a whole new light. It's like at the end of one of those movies with, with a twist, right? The Sixth Sense or whatever movie, I'm not going to spoil anything, right? That, that causes you to, to now look through the entirety of that movie or that story leading up to that point and see things in a whole new light. And here it makes us look back on Jonah perhaps in a whole new light too. He is this conflicted prophet who knows who God is and yet takes issue with it. You see, as much as Jonah believed that God was gracious and merciful, he also wanted to believe that that grace and mercy was reserved only for him, only for his nation, his people Israel, not his enemies, not this nation of Assyria, not the Ninevites. How could God love them? How could God love other nations, especially this particular nation? Right? They were the most vile of vile. They were downright evil. One, one scholar, he puts it this way. The Assyrians were known for their violence and cruelty. They proudly recorded their methods of torturing captives, and they displayed their victims' body parts throughout their cities. The level of their violence rivals that of Hitler or Pol Pot. To someone living in the ancient world, Nineveh would be least deserving of God's grace. Isn't that the point, though? Isn't that the point of chapter 2 of Jonah's prayer, right? That, that none of us deserve God's grace. That's what makes it grace. It's a gift. 
God's mercy, too, is not predicated on our merit, on how righteous we are, or how undeserving or how sinful that person is. It is predicated on God's character. And so for Jonah to think that he could run from grace, run from God at the same time, demanding that God serve his own interests, that meant that he failed to take into account that God is doing what is right because it is his nature to do so. Right? God was acting according to his own nature, his own character, who he is. He was being God. You might have shared this story a time or two in a, in a sermon before, so you might have heard this. But when I was in college, I went to a small private Christian liberal arts college, Gordon College up north. We also had this nearby college, Endicott, whom we were rivals. I don't know if it's still the same case today, but at the time when I was there, we hated them as much as we could hate them as Christians, you know. But and this rivalry came to its biggest blow on the basketball courts. You know, and we would, as, as Christians, you know, there's not much that we can entertain ourselves with up, up there, and so we would focus on these things, right? Division three basketball, I know that the rest of the world, the rest of the country probably doesn't really care about it, but in our little small section up on the North Shore, that's what we're, we're focused on, right? And so these Gordon versus Endicott games were always the most packed. We would go to their campus for their games, they would come to ours. We had this fan section called the pit, Right? And where we would constantly be yelling and, and shouting and wearing our Gordon Pitt t-shirts and standing the entire time, like literally for over an hour or however long the, the basketball game was. And again, because we're you know, just trying to entertain ourselves, we would, we would stand there and just throw our hands up every time one of our plays went to the free throw line and we would you know, wiggle our spirit fingers as if to, to imply that something that we're doing right then could influence uh, the, the, the outcome of the game, right? And so during one of these games at Endicott, it started uh, getting pretty heated. We were going back and forth with our chants. And, you know, something like, you know, let's go, Gordon. And then it got real because then Endicott started to make some baskets, and they shouted back, God's on our side. <laughs> oh, that one hurt because for a split second, all of us in that pit section, we're like, oh, isn't God supposed to be on our side? Like we're the Christian college, right? We're the self-professed Christians. here, the college full of pagans and atheists. You know, that's not to say that Gordon doesn't have, you know, non-Christians. But, you know, why would God be on their side? Then they scored some more baskets. And then they shouted a new one. Jesus loves us. And then we, the pit, screamed, yes, he does. The <laughs> point of that story is, say, too often we really want to keep God's grace for ourselves. We want to draw lines where God doesn't draw them. We like to think that God is on our side, not our enemies or not this other group, other person, other whatever, right? Not theirs. God, but God is on God's side. He is true to his nature of being gracious and loving and merciful to all. He offers that gift to each and every one of us. That's a good thing for us and for them, whoever them might be. Mercy is not predicated on merit but on God's character. Second point, God's meritless mercy is meant for others as much as it meant for us, verses 5 to 11. So let me read uh, this last section for us as well. 
The narrative continues. Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God had appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to live, or for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and, and also much cattle? Jonah didn't like that, though. He was angry, so angry that when, when verse 1 says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, it literally means that it was, it was exceedingly evil to him. Jonah was so infuriated, so upset that he considered God's action of sparing Nineveh to be a great evil and wrong. Right? Often, sometimes, have we or heard things of saying, God, if he is that way, that is wrong. That is evil because of who he is. Right? Jonah's response then is to choose death over life. Right? In other words, he would rather die than to live in a world where God forgives his enemies. So God proceeds to give Jonah this object lesson, which for us, who kind of already knows Jonah's heart, it further proves Jonah to be wrong and God to be right. And so this second section here is kind of a flashback. It goes back, backwards, back to where maybe three verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, where, when God relents of the disaster. Because in verse 5, Jonah had just left the city, and now he's waiting. He's watching to see what's going to happen. The people repented. Will God really relent? Maybe he won't. Jonah's hoping maybe he won't, even if deep down he knows God will. So Jonah's there sitting under the shade of the booth that he made, and because it is hot. Right? God appoints then a plant, makes a cover Jonah to provide even more shade. And so we begin, begin to see God's sovereignty continually here, right? Coming up again in chapter 1, God showed his concern for Jonah by appointing a, a fish. Now in chapter 4, God shows his concern for Jonah by appointing, same word there, a plant. Likewise, God saves Jonah from his discomfort. And this word here is kind of functioning as a double entendre, when, we, uh, when it's applied to what God already did for Nineveh, which is to save them from, not discomfort, but disaster. So Jonah is exceedingly displeased at God's concern for Nineveh. 
yet exceedingly glad at God's concern for himself. Do you see some of those parallels, those comparisons that are happening in this literary context? And so don't miss these comparisons because they further underscore Jonah's inconsistency. Maybe sometimes even shines a light on our own inconsistency, our own hearts, in understanding great God's grace as it applies to him, but not to others. So God now not only appoints a plant, he now appoints a worm to attack that plant. Plant is now gone. Right? God then appoints a scorching east wind. And this is not one of those nice summer breezes where it's like, oh, it's so hot. And oh, this, the, the, the coolness of the, the wind on my skin feels so refreshing. This is not that. Right? This wind is this constant hot air, so hot that it can cause exhaustion, it can cause depression. It can cause feelings of distortion and, and uh, disconnection from reality. And in fact, in some countries, the, the punishment for a crime that is committed uh, may actually be reduced if the crime was committed during one of these scorching east winds. Because the rationale, the argument is that, well, the prolonged hot uh, wind affected that person's thinkings and actions. And so needless to say, it, it's hot. The sun is now beating down on Jonah. And now guess what? Jonah actually says something really eerily familiar. Verse 8, it is better for me to die than to live. Now where do we read that? In our Bibles, if you kind of look just a few verses up, verse 3, same thing, just a few verses earlier. God asks him, now, do you do well to be angry for the plant? What right do you have to be angry for the plant? And Jonah, he's obviously unhappy, to say the least. He says back to God, Yeah, I am angry. I have a right to be angry. Angry enough to die. And I kind of just envision Jonah pouting, throwing a tantrum here. And in verses 10 to 11, God now is pointing out Jonah's own heart, Jonah's own erroneous position, right? That Jonah values the life of this plant more than the life of this nation, Nineveh. And this plant was something that Jonah didn't even labor over. It was just there. God appointed. He didn't make it grow. Jonah didn't watch over it and nurture it and care for it. And so why should Jonah care about it now that it's gone? The object lesson that God is showing here is, is showing that God is doing for Nineveh what Jonah insists that he had the right to do for a measly plant. God responds to Jonah, should not I pity Nineveh then? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and, and all so much cattle. Now God is not saying, let's be clear, God's not saying that Nineveh is innocent He's not simply just ignoring the fact that, that Nineveh is a nation that is ruthless and violent and has committed atrocities. But he is pointing out kind of to the extent that they are helpless. He, in the sense that God is challenging the narrow particularism of Jonah's belief in God's character. Right? Jonah knew that God was gracious and merciful, but he was unwilling 
to accept that this extended to all who seek after him, to all who are willing to repent and turn from their evil ways to God. There is no room for Jonah's narrow particularism alongside God's wide mercy. By the end of the story, the answer to God's question is clear. Jonah had no right. In fact, none of us do. Romans 9, 15 to 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, not on human righteousness, on good works, but on God who has mercy. Mercy is not predicated on merits, but on God's character. And that meritless mercy is meant for others as much as is meant for us. As we close out this book, I think the message of Jonah is especially timely. When we think about what's happening in the Middle East right now, the war that's literally just been declared between Israel and Hamas, Hundreds of lives have already been lost on both sides as the attacks started yesterday morning, their time. I'm not aiming to dwell into the long-standing and complex geopolitical conflict and territorial disputes between Israel and Palestine, or even to use scripture right now to justify one side or the other. But my point here is as we think, as we've been working our way through this book of Jonah, is I do think the message of Jonah God's word should give us pause as Christians when we will, maybe already have been, undoubtedly been bombarded by sound bites and news articles. The world, the nations are in need of God's grace, the gospel of God's grace and mercy. Even our own Tendencies, if we are to reflect and think about our own hearts, our own tendencies towards a narrow particularism are challenged by the wideness of God's mercy. So the book of Jonah here is here to remind us that at every page turn, at every article click, at every podcast play, that God's mercy is not predicated on merit, but on God's character, on who he is. His mercy is for others as much as it is meant for us. As followers of Jesus, we are called, we are invited to be agents of that message, to be ambassadors for Christ, and also for our own lives, our own attitudes, our own actions, our own speech, our own values to reflect that as well. The book of Jonah ends uh, on this unanswered question with no definitive, uh, definite resolution for Jonah. And so the, uh, the effect, to some extent, is to draw our attention away from how Jonah responded. Like, what does he say? What, what's going to happen? What's the sequel, right? And it draws us away from that, and, and it shines a mirror to us. How will we respond? How will you respond? God's question, have you any right to be angry? It's a question posed to us as much as it is presented to Jonah. 
Now, again, we, we may not outwardly manifest the same sort of frustration that Jonah had. Maybe we have a little bit more self-control or, you know, whatever. But our hearts often betray us by delighting in either the misfortunes of the ungodly or our hearts betray us by, by harboring bitterness towards others, particularly those who are not like ourselves, Christian or not. Fundamentally, our hearts, if we were to dig a little bit deeper, if, you're a little bit, if we were to sit a little bit more in that, our hearts might rest sometimes in the same false belief that Jonah held, that God's mercy is both limited in scope and based on merit. The result then is a failure in our own lives to extend God's mercy to others despite having experienced God's mercy for ourselves. You know, we share with other Christians our experience of God's mercy, which is great, but are silent when it comes to those who maybe perhaps don't share the same beliefs that we do. And yet this is precisely what the book of Jonah challenges, that the more we come to realize the grandeur of God's glory is so great such that any difference in perceived righteousness among us is rendered negligible, the more we will believe that we all alike desperately need the mercy of God that has been offered to all. And through Jonah, this, through this book, we see God's love extend beyond the community of God's people to those who are racially and religiously different from us. It doesn't mean that they are automatically saved, but it does mean that we are called to bring that gospel, bring that message of hope, that message of salvation and repentance to them. Even the right response to the pagans in chapter 1 and chapter 3 show us that even pagans sometimes can show more moral virtue than prophets. But that only leads us as Christians, as those of us who know the gospel, it leads us only to the conclusion that all of us are sinful, lost, and only saved by the grace of God. We've covered a lot of ground over these past six weeks or so. And each of these four chapters of Jonah, we've covered kind of four big ideas as well as one overarching idea for, that captures the entire book of Jonah. And so from these big ideas, I hope this is going to aid us as we move forward, as we think about our mission of bridging cultures to build a family in Christ, as we think about our motives of being for God and being missional. Chapter 1, you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. Right? We know that nothing and no one can thwart God's sovereignty and his mission of salvation. But we also can't just naturally just assume, take for granted, that God is going to chase after us, right? Twist our arm to obey. Jonah's call is not necessarily a paradigm for all future generations of believers. We're not going to, you know, run away, take a cruise, and then jump off the cruise, and God's going to appoint a fish to swallow us, to twist our arm to get us to follow the Great Commission. I mean, that may happen, but I I wouldn't risk it, you know. God will accomplish his plan whether through us or through others. And God may not be as insistent with us as he was with Jonah. He might. He might have placed a specific call on your life, and that is great. 
But the, this is the distinction, I think, between the direct call to a person that Jonah received and, and the widespread call to a people that we have all received in the Great Commission. The implication, perhaps, one implication, is that given enough resistance, I believe that, I really believe in your effort. If you try really hard, I believe that you can suppress and stifle God's call. If you try really hard, I believe that you can harden your heart so much that you begin to ignore and be, begin to not hear God's voice. But in doing so, we, we run the risk of either provoking God to anger or we just risk missing out on the joy of participating and sharing in God's plan of redemption. And neither are preferable. Right? But if we obey God's call, if we follow through in obedience and in faith, we do so knowing that another implication is this, we can't mess it up. Right? We can't mess up God's plan. We have a confidence in the fact that while the responsibility of reaching God's people is ours, the responsibility of saving God's people is not. Chapter 2, gratitude grows out of an experience of God's grace and a realization of our predicament. So the right response to God's grace is good news is gratitude. And that gratitude will work itself in us to transform us by the Holy Spirit, by God's word, to grow into an extension of God's grace to others. I think Jonah only got part of it, right? His gratitude grew out of an experience of God's grace and a realization of his predicament. That was chapter 2, like he was at death's door. But his gratitude did not grow into an extension of God's grace to others, other groups, other peoples, other nations, one that is joyfully obeyed, not begrudgingly followed. As we begin to conclude and prepare to put into practice what we learned these past few weeks, we must remember that it begins first with God's grace to us. That is the driving factor, I believe, that was going to change our hearts and our lives. It's more than just the command, like do this and do that, right? It's more than just good advice. It's, it's good news that's already happened to us, for us. Chapter 3, when people repent, God relents, right? How do people respond to God's message of judgment and salvation? Well, with genuine, wholehearted repentance that is in response to the message, but directed towards the Messiah, Jesus. And so when we do outreach, when we share the gospel, we must remember that uh, what it is that we're proclaiming, it is the gospel, the gospel that our own lives are centered on. You know, we don't just stop with sharing our testimonies. We proclaim the gospel. And then what? We call for a response. Now, asterisks, right? Like we use common sense. We use God-given wisdom and, and, and knowing how to approach that, how to talk to people and have honest and good and deep conversations and when people believe in the gospel, when they repent and seek Jesus for salvation, we know we have the assurance, the confidence that God will relent because he is a gracious and merciful God. Chapter 4, 
God's meritless mercy is meant for others as much as it's meant for us. God's mercy is not predicated on merit, right? Not on our own good works, our own performance, our own righteousness, what we've done, how righteous or holy we are. Because if we, if we really believe that, then it makes perfect sense why we might want to hoard God's grace for ourselves while harboring bitterness and self-righteousness towards others. Because we deserve it. They don't. We earned it. They didn't. But the fact of the matter is we didn't either. Right? That's the gospel, right? That God's mercy is based on who he is, not on us. And that mercy is meant for others too. And we may not be the ardent pro-nationalist, pro-Israel, pro-nation, pro-America, pro-China, pro-whatever, outspoken, bitter, stubborn person that Jonah might have been, but we may be surprised that when we look deep in our own hearts, in our own lives, our own speech, our actions, our values, what we're posting on social media, what we're saying to others, that we might be a little bit closer to Jonah than to Jesus. And if we are, we might need a fresh outpouring of God's grace and mercy in our lives. This last big idea as we conclude. Those who experience God's grace must extend his grace. So this is what we hit on in that first overview message many weeks ago. Jonah tried to run from God's grace. He understood it, but he only liked what it meant for him, not for others. And so he would not arise and go. But for us, if we have experienced God's grace, let us also extend it to others. Jonah's context helps us to know exactly how to do that. It's not just being nice to people. I mean, we can be, anyone can be nice. Like I went to Gordon College. That's where nice exists, right? Where we will hold the door open even if they're walking like 100 yards out and it creates pressure because then there's, they need to hurry it up, but we're going we're gonna to hold that up because we're going to be super nice, right? But that's, that's not what Jonah is about here, right? It's not just being nice to people. It's, and it's, it's not simply just showing grace when people wrong you. I think that's part of it, too. But it's about bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the very people who we might all too naturally react towards with a judgmental spirit, the very people who we are hesitant, reluctant to call our own. The very people who don't look like us, who don't act like us, who don't think like us, who don't live their lives like us. Because at the end of the day, isn't that the gospel? Isn't that what Jesus, fully God, fully man, did? That Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue, from every nation, every people group, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
Let's pray. Gracious and merciful God, we give thanks for, you, for who you are, for the kind of God that you are loving and compassionate and patient towards us first and foremost. Help us to remember the message of Jonah and to live in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.